This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. My guest today is Lloyd Reeb. Lloyd is an executive coach, a speaker, an entrepreneur, and an author. Together with his mentor, the late Bob Buford, Lloyd helped to launch the Halftime Institute over 20 years ago, an organization that has worked with thousands of mid-career Christian executives who are seeking to better integrate their faith with their work. Lloyd, I've really been looking forward to this interview for uh, a couple of reasons now. You know, first, uh, you're one of the top leaders with the Halftime Network, and uh, you're an executive coach with more than 20,000 hours of coaching. So that means you've come into contact with hundreds and hundreds of Christian leaders from virtually every imaginable field of endeavor, uh, from medicine to business to academia. So I can't think of anybody who knows more leaders than Lloyd Reeb. Uh, but I'm also interested in chatting today about your own fascinating career. Uh, you started in commercial real estate and spent a number of years uh, building a, a business there. And then you made your own halftime transition uh, to work full time at coaching and mentoring uh, other leaders. So you are a gold mine uh, today, and I'm the miner that's trying to pick a little gold out of those veins and get some of your, your wisdom here. So uh, so welcome to the podcast and thanks for appearing. Thank you, Rich. I want to start by asking you uh, to talk a little bit more about the Halftime Network. For listeners that aren't familiar with it, uh, what is the Halftime Network? What's it all about? Well, you know, there there's a growing number of people who have achieved some measure of success in their life. And they look up from their desk and wonders, is there more to life than this, than just driving my next quarter's earnings or growing our net worth? And, uh, and there's this longing to go from kind of making a living to making a life. And sometimes they have oversimplified ideas about what that means. And maybe it means you sell your business or you quit your corporate job and you go work for a nonprofit. Or um, maybe it means you need to be a pastor or something like that. Uh, but very few can make this journey well on their own. And so what we realized early in this movement uh, was that people needed process. They needed peers around them. They needed some case studies of other people and they needed some one-on-one -on -one help. And so what we've done is build a global network of friends that are trying to use our time, talent, and treasure to really maximize our impact on the earth. You know, it's fun that Jesus said, hey, don't be this kind of soil and don't be that kind of soil, mm -hmm. but be this soil that produced 30, 60 and 100 fold. And I find it's interesting that it's volitional. We have agency. It's not you're born with good soil or bad soil. It's that you mm -hmm. choose to be the soil that multiplies. And I know one thing you and I have in common is this deep, deep desire that our lives would produce a 100 fold return. As chief life officers, we want to invest our lives so that it produces a hundredfold return. And we're both leaders. We've been given the gift of leadership. Yours are different. Your leadership strengths are are very different from mine. Um, and I admire your leadership strengths. I have the ones I was given, so I'm a steward of mine. And so that's what we do: is we help each other be stewards of our leadership to produce a life that's a hundred x. You know, um, one of the paradigms that I think. Uh, we lived with for many years is that you're either in full-time ministry or you're in full-time non-ministry work, right? And there was kind of like a dividing wall uh, between those two worlds and lives. And I think what the Halftime Network has done is said that's a false paradigm. Uh, we can all be in, in, in full-time ministry and full-time work. Uh, we can do both and. We should do both and. We shouldn't just be uh, compartmentalized in in one direction, uh, but uh, we can look at our our leadership gifts, our our network, our sphere of influence, and say, how can I use that for the kingdom, 
at the same time I'm building a business or supporting a family or pursuing a, a profession, um, I can have kind of a dual track in my life uh, that, that, that takes me to a, a different kind of impact. Uh, than just r- running my business or pursuing my my profession. Yeah, and th- and that success season, Rich, is so important because it's in that anvil of that th- that that success, the anvil on which our leadership skills are honed. It's the anvil on which our faith is is strengthened as we learn to be salt and light in whatever first context we serve in. And sometimes, you, if you try to short circuit that, you miss out on the corporate. Uh, boot boot camp that equips you to be a great leader. If you think about Moses' life, he spent the first 40 years getting an MBA and then working his way up through corporate Egypt and and he became the COO or something, right? Right. And yet 95% of the Bible verses about Moses' life are his second half. And what I find interesting is God never dissed his first half. He never said, what a waste of time that he got a great education and learned to lead. You know, my... Uh after I'd been at World Vision for about a year, after a 23-year career in, you know, corporations, I was so excited about my new job. Uh, I really was kind of thrilled and pinching myself to realize that God was going to use me in a different way now. And I said to my wife, I said, honey, you know, why didn't I do this in my 20s? You know, I, I should have done this in my 20s. And uh, I feel like I've, I've wasted the last 23 years. And she said, no, you weren't ready in your 20s. And, and she said, now you're ready. You're ready spiritually and you're ready professionally to do something uh, for the Lord that's different uh, and, and meaningful in a different way. So uh, uh, she had a lot of wisdom there in, in my own uh, thinking about my career. And I want to ask about your halftime story, because as I said in the introduction, you uh, built a real estate business, uh, retirement communities, I think it, it is. And uh, I think you're still involved with that business, uh, maybe it at more of an arm's length, but um, what happened in your journey that caused you to make a 90 degree or maybe 180 degree turn into executive coaching and the kind of work you, you're doing now? Well, you know, this is ultimately a heart journey, isn't it, uh, Rich? And that's yeah. the work of the Spirit of God. So I I was developing real estate. I went to McGill University in Montreal and and I crammed a four-year degree into three years because I was so focused on making money. I figured if I got it done, I'd have one extra year of earning, right? And um, and then um, worked away and did my first subdivision in my early 20s. And I used every bit of that money and reinvested it, didn't spend a penny, reinvested it into our first retirement community with my business partner. And um, in 1988, I built a five-year plan with the hopes that in five years, I would have a certain amount of freedom, financial freedom, to be able to do whatever the Lord had for me. I wrote it out. It was typed It was typed on a typewriter, and I have it sitting right over here. So this was October 13th, 1987. It turned out to be Black Friday or Black Monday, whatever that day was. And um, what happened was along the way in those five years, I could see God executing on that plan that I was going to have financial freedom in my early at age 32. Wow. And so I started to explore how could God use a recovering real estate developer? <laughs> and I made the mistake of taking a trip through Asia and I went to Hong Kong and we, we stayed downtown. It was a fun touristy thing. And we went to Malaysia and that was wonderful too at the Tanyan Arrow Beach Hotel in Island, Malaysia, overlooking the South China Sea. And then I spent a week with a missionary friend serving poor children that were suffering in the slums, played basketball, shared the, the message of God's love and forgiveness with them. And when I got to the next stop in Singapore, all I could think about was, this is not the life I want. I had more fun with those kids in Manila, in the, in the, in the slums. And I asked one prayer on my long flight home. I said, Lord, please never let my heart go back. And I think he simply answered that prayer. And I've never really been drawn anymore by the by the acquisition of, of wealth. Although what's interesting, Rich, is through these last 25 years of financial freedom, our net worth is probably tripled, even though we've had the privilege of giving. It's because you simply can't outgive God with your mm-hmm. life. And so what I am now, I'm still an investor. 
I'm still an investor, but I'm an investor of my time, talent, and treasure with a long-term yield. A hundred years from now, I'm trying to maximize my return on life, not just a 30-year return on investment. You know, um, that's a powerful story in the way God confronted you with that. And, you know, one of the things I often tell younger leaders, uh, because when you're young, you're so uh, consumed by your job, your profession, your career. Um, you know, it can be a very busy time, those 20s and 30s, as you're establishing yourself in whatever field uh, you're, you're in. Um, but it's, uh, that's the time when you might ask yourself this question that, you know, someday we'll all stand before the Lord, right? And, and maybe we'll hear an accounting, his accounting of our life. And I try to imagine, you know, when I stand before the Lord someday, uh, when he looks at my life, what will he say were the most important, significant things that I accomplished? Uh, I think what he's going to be looking at is, uh, what did you do with the time, talent, and treasure I gave you? It'll be like that parable of the stewards, right? Where each of those three stewards were given a certain amount of money, and then the master left. And when he returned, his basic question is, what did you do with what I entrusted you with? Uh, in other words, did you work to get the master a return on his investment? Or did you do nothing for the master? Uh, and, and you didn't get him a return on investment. And, and I think that's kind of the question. But I think it's a, it's a centering question for someone in their 20s or 30s to say, uh, you know, or another way to put it, if I were to write my own obituary today, even though I maybe will live another 50 years, what would I want that obituary to say? And you probably wouldn't list your job titles and your your salary uh, increases and the things that seem so important, you know, when you're young. So, I mean, that's a profound thing, I, I think, Lloyd, to, for us to think about that, um, you know, that moment when we stand before the Lord. Let me, let me ask you another question. So you made this kind of conclusion uh, early in your, I guess, early thirties. Did you have any mentors early in your career that uh, helped you see this kind of thing? Yeah, you know, um, my first job out of McGill, I worked um, alongside a uh, a very talented national sales uh, leader for a tech company, and um, his dad had uh, been an executive with the White Motor Company, which was a truck manufacturer at the time, and, and he had made a choice about how he invested his time, and I remember thinking, wow, he really... Uh, you know, he really sacrificed financially to be able to make a, a kingdom impact. Now, that, that was influential for me. And then once I made this transition, someone introduced me to Bob Buford, and he has been a mentor for, he was a mentor for 22 years before he passed away. But what I didn't know early on, though, Rich, was that when we say what will matter is not so much your business card or your net worth, but what you did for the Lord, the, the nuance that you've got to understand if you're in your 20s or 30s is that that does not mean you quit your job in corporate America or sell your business. This is the honing ground of skills. And not only that, it can be the very best platform for kingdom impact. I got a call this morning from a guy that runs a global investment bank, one of the largest global investment banks in the world. And his calling is to be salt and light in the in the global financial markets. And we went through, I, I seek to be an encouragement to him on a regular basis. Because if you're a pastor, there are people applauding you every time you step down after doing a great sermon. If you're called to serve the top executives as a global investment banker, there is no one applauding you. People think you're just a one percenter, you're privileged, you're making a lot of money. But here's a guy that has a prayerful list of 30 top executives whose hearts are open to God and need encouragement and need nurturing and need someone who can connect with them as a peer. There is, there is no pastor that can really waltz into those boardrooms with the same cachet. But he had to earn it in his 20s and 30s, and it's won him a platform. And while I don't think the Lord's going to highlight his role in the investment bank when they meet face to face, but I don't think the Lord's going to discount the fact that he had to earn his right to get to speak into that platform. And I've been down, down there in New York in his Upper East Side apartment building where he's brought top executives from the investment banking world, and I've watched how their hearts are so thirsty for the truth of God's 
God's goodness and grace. And so what you don't want to do is inadvertently assume that your calling is outside the marketplace or inside the marketplace or anything like that. It could be a blend of those. But what we know is he wants to use you to change the world, and it'll be the best adventure you've ever been on. You know, that's an important point and one I wanted to talk to you about uh, today because most, I could probably say this with confidence, most uh, Christian leaders will not quit their day job and go full-time into ministry um, as a pastor, as a leader of a Christian ministry. Uh, Some will, but most won't, right? And so you get to this notion of the significance of our work. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things I try to talk to in my new leadership book is that uh, your work is your mission field. Uh, your work is sacred. It, you, you have actually been stationed there by God uh, to be his ambassador in that place, whatever that might be. Your friend was an investment banker. And you're right, because of where he was positioned, he had access to people that maybe no pastor would have that access, or the pastor might have the access, but not the credibility. Um, and so, God positions us in strategic ways often to uh, uh, to be his ambassador uh, in uh, very different situations. You could be a school administrator. You could be right now in the healthcare system dealing with COVID-19. And, and uh, you're there for a reason. And, and you're, you're Christ's ambassador in that place. And you can make a difference in that place. And so when, when you work with these halftime executives, you, know, you could say some of them are Uh, Maybe some of them are having a midlife crisis or they're having a midlife conversation with themselves about what's important and who am I and what does God have for me? What does God want me to do? Um, What's the process they go through to discern that? Well, I think the first, the very first spot to start with is, is there such a thing as a calling? Could it possibly be that the creator and sustainer of this entire universe has a purpose for me and that if I discovered it, my life would go from black and white to color, that it would give more meaning and purpose than I could ever imagine? And and that is not a simple thing to skip over because it seems like a strange notion. Most of us simply go to work and it's an important thing to do because we're going to be a provider. And the Bible says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. So we go, gosh, I don't want to be that. I'm going to go to work and then I'm going to come home. I'm going to be in a small group. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to, you know, take my kids to soccer and dance practice. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning, watch football in the afternoon and go back to work. And the sense that there could be a meta calling on my life. But I love to think about John 1, 6, Gospel of John, the first chapter, Verse six, it says, there came a man, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Now, if you stop there, that will blow your mind. Imagine there was a man sent from God. His name was Rich. And it goes on to say he was sent as, and then it describes his purpose on this planet. He was sent as a, as a witness. And then it goes on to describe the desired results God had, the key performance indicators, the metrics for the guy's life, so that through him all might believe. So there's a purpose statement. And then we know in Ephesians 2.10, it says, for you are God's workmanship or handiwork. The real word underneath it is like poetry. You, Rich, are God's poetry. There's nothing like you else out there. It created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which I prepared in advance for you to do. So I think the starting place is that. And the second place is you, is starting with you. This is more akin to archaeology than architecture. In Galatians 6, 4, and 5, if you read the message translations like I do sometimes, uh, it says, so Galatians 6, 4, and 5, give careful thought to who you are and the work you've been given. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of us must take responsibility to do the very best we can with the creative best we can with our own life. So think about that. This is the process God mapped out. Give careful thought to who you are. So I'm a thought leader. You're a good organizational leader. If I tried running World Vision with 49,000 staff and all the moving parts, it would be chaos. I've been given the ability to be a thought leader, to help people bring 
clarity into an otherwise confusing life. I was given the, the, the thrill of taking a piece of land and creating something beautiful, taking a blank canvas and envisioning what could be. Rich, that's all I do every day with people's lives. I start with a blank canvas and the core ingredients in their soul, and together we create something beautiful for the next 20 or 30 years. And so you start with who you are. And don't you, Lloyd, I know one of the things uh, I've seen in the halftime sessions is you help men and women uh, write their own personal mission statement to express their calling uh, so that they can make it, you know, in language that business people understand, right? You, you need a concrete mission statement that helps guide you strategically in the choices you right. make in life. So talk about that process. You know, if you, if you don't have a sense of your calling, it begs the question, when exactly are you going to discover it? And there was a French poet that said once that when you discover your destiny, if you don't follow it, it follows you like an accusing shadow. Mm, that's so, good. So what is the one thing that you can't outrun? I've been doing this. I've been having this same conversation, Rich, for 23 years. And I woke up this morning as excited as I was the first day. And so that's a calling and you can't outrun it. Now, a, a Chinese pastor told me once, and I finished a sermon in, in Hong Kong, he said, he came up to me and he's, he's an elderly gentleman, probably in his mid eighties. And he said, young man, which by the way, I took as a compliment, Rich. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, remember your calling is a gift to receive, not a goal to achieve. Mm -hmm. So this is about open-handedly asking the Lord for clarity and you explore it. But here's the thing that's interesting is your calling provides a unifying thread through your life. You and I and everybody listening to us, Rich, has 168 hours every week. When you think of calling, it's not just, is it, am I, is my work fit my calling? It's not just that. That's so, that's so simplified. You got 168 hours a week. If you take 50 hours off for sleep. And if you take 50 hours off for work, you're still left with 68 hours. That's a lot of time to be able to live out your calling. So it, your calling can help you integrate your work life and your post-work life, the rest of your life. I am someone, the same person here in the neighborhood as I am at work and in my business as I am in my ministry. So let me explore that a bit because in my experience, I've seen a lot of people who tend to compartmentalize their lives and their faith. So what do I mean by that? So, um, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus um, on the weekends, in the evenings with my family, in my, in my community. But when I go to work, uh, I don't put on the full armor of God. I put on the full armor of the world because my work is a jungle and it's dog eat dog and it's survival of the fittest. Or, you know, maybe I work in a negative uh, corporate culture that is pretty difficult, challenging. And so when I go to work, I, I check my faith at the door. I go in for battle. And when I come home at night, I pick my faith up and take it home with me. I think there are a lot of people that live their lives that way. They compartmentalize. Uh, so, you know, talk a little bit about that. Have you, have you found that in some of your counseling sessions with uh, CEOs and leaders? Uh, feelings that, you know, I just, uh, I just don't know how to integrate my work life with my faith life. And, uh, or put another way, how do I take God to work with me? Or to use your uh, description, how do I take God with me all 168 hours a week, so that I'm living a consistent life uh, based on my faith and my relationship with the Lord? Yeah, well, I think, you know, some of these the leadership characteristics that you highlight in this book, Lead Like It Matters to God, um, speak to this because, uh, you know, I, there's three that come to mind that, that I think set this topic up. One is surrender, the other is courage, and the other is perseverance. What the surrender thing means is that I come to the end of my, um, I come to the end of the belief that this career and the results of it are mine. And instead, I realize I'm a steward of this time and of this platform God's given me. 
you know, in Colossians, it says, make God proud of you as you work hard for him in his orchard. When I was developing real estate early, I was working hard for me in my orchard. And so frankly, if I was going to do any kind of Christian outreach, it was out of obligation. Um, and then as I came to this halftime point in life, I realized I want to work hard for God, but it was still my orchard. Now, what I aspire to in this season of my life is to work hard for God in his orchard where I don't own this. I don't own the trees in this orchard. I get up in the morning. I put my little rubber boots on figuratively. I get my pruning shears. I put my lunch bucket under my hand. I go out into the orchard. I work on the trees I'm assigned to. And I go home and I don't worry about the price of orange futures. It's not my orchard. I'm working for him. It's his orchard. And so if you view your whole life as if you're a steward of what you've been given, and you're trying to produce, a, you're trying to be simply the soil that produced a hundredfold. Then when you look at how to be salt and light, you, you don't do it out of obligation. You do it out of opportunity. Now, the second piece is that you have, you have to understand there are certain rules of engagement. And when you choose a platform uh, in which to work, there are some things that are, are going to be out of bounds that were set out of bounds early in the rules of engagement. In some corporate settings, to talk publicly about your faith with colleagues or people who work for you is out of bounds, and you know that you're going to pay the consequences. So you, you, you'd have to decide that up front. It doesn't mean you can't be salt and light, but you've you got to understand the rules of engagement where you are. And then the second is that you got to prepare. I have to prepare. And a big part of preparing to be salt and light is integrating the truth of God into my own life and character so it's contagious. Mm -hmm. That means the daily discipline of spending time each morning with the Lord in prayer and reading the Bible. The second is being prepared to ask some good questions. You know, I think questions are more helpful to people's spiritual journey than smart answers are. Yeah. So what would it be to be a student of smart of good questions? Now, I coach people that are executives that want to move from success to significance, but they don't yet know the Lord. And I've been a student of good questions. And so one of the most powerful questions I ask is, um, I will say, now, is faith a piece of this journey for you in this next season? And, uh, and they can say yes or no. And for some of them, they'll say, well, not hasn't been so far, but I think I might be open to that. I've never really given that any thought. And, and so then I'll say, you know what? It, it strikes me. Uh, one question I find interesting myself is, suppose you were on the phone and for some reason you knew you were on the phone with God. And he says to you that he would answer any one question. What one question would you ask him? Wow. You know, whether you know it or not, you are now in a spiritual conversation. You don't mm -hmm. have to have answers. All you have to do is affirm their question. And mm -hmm. you're, you're building trust and you're in a spiritual conversation. Now, one of the mistaken thoughts is that to be salt and light in the marketplace means you're always talking about your faith. And I just don't think that that's true. I think a lot of the time you're modeling your faith, you're building trust and relationships. And, and so trust is a big factor to being salt and light. You know, the... That last point you made, in my life, uh, a verse that's been very important is this verse about being Christ's ambassadors. It's from 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God is making his appeal through us. And what I try to lay out in my book is that wherever you are, you could be in the most toxic corporate culture. You could be in the middle of the impeachment trial in Washington. You could... You could be anywhere. Uh, you could be in a hospital that's filled up with COVID patients struggling to, you know, uh, manage uh, the influx. Um, but if you think of yourself as an ambassador, like I'm, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And, um, and what does an ambassador do? An ambassador just seeks to represent the interests, but also the character and values of the one that sent them. So if you're an ambassador for the United States in another country, you're representing the values and, and priorities of the United States to that foreign nation. If you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ, working at Amazon or General Motors or in the coal industry, you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ in that role. And um, you're right. You don't have to have a Bible study at your lunch hour or, you know, share the four spiritual laws with somebody, you know, in the elevator. Um, but you can be salt and light or, you know, light in the darkness, right? There's, there's, a, there's a lot of darkness in our world and in our workplaces. 
uh, or another word is brokenness. You know, there's brokenness in every human institution. And a Christian leader can be restorative, can be inspiring, uh, can can be an encourager of people and a builder of cultures that are redemptive in which people can flourish. And if you can be that person in your workplace, um, I think amazing things start to happen. People start coming to you. People start confiding in you, trusting you because you seem different than the other people. You're not as concerned about the quarterly earnings as you are about the people who work there and their lives. And, and so I just think there's a wonderful opportunity. And, and the darker your professional environment is, the more challenging and difficult it is, the bigger the opportunity to be that ambassador of, of Jesus Christ. So I, uh, I think that, you know, in terms of compartmentalizing one's faith, uh, that's a concept that we just need to break down. There, there's no reason that you need to compartmentalize your faith. You do have to have those boundaries, like you said. You can't, you know, just walk into your workplace and start reading scripture, you know, stand on a soapbox and start reading scripture. But but you can be an ambassador wherever you are. And I think that's a, a great principle. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you and I think about life as chief life officer, where we're investing our life and we're looking for a long-term return on it and something that we're going to celebrate a thousand years from now or a hundred years from now, it begs the question, why would I want to go through 45 or 50 hours of my week without trying to be a blessing in the lives of the people around me? Why would mm -hmm. I want to do that? And so if I feel weird about it, then maybe I need the skills to be able to do it, to make it permission-based, to make it attractive so people are asking about it. And um, I, I've seen so many great examples, but, you know, when this COVID hit one of the key bankers um, in uh, in a bank uh, that I happen to be coaching has four or five thousand employees that work under him. He uh, he realized this was an opportunity, even though it's a corporate setting where normally you can't bring your faith into the conversation, that there was so much despair in the hearts of people that were working for him, that this was an opportunity for him to simply say to them in a, in a, all, a town hall meeting on Zoom, um, you know, last thing I'd like to leave you with is this, this is an opportunity for you to grow personally. And I want to help you grow through this crisis. Not only are we going to help our customers win, but you and I can win. And I've won, I've learned and grown in some of the most deep crisis of my life. And here's some examples. And so in this time, in this point where I feel like I need to get on my knees, what I do is I turn back to my faith and it gives me my relationship with Jesus, gives me the courage I need to step up and really lead and and to bring encouragement to you guys. And I encourage you to explore where do you go to when the chips are down and how can you grow through this? Now, I, applaud, I applauded him for that. It was a courageous step. But he's also gotten to the place around surrender where he's willing to pay the consequences if, if he has to. You know, there's that saying, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I really believe that whatever the crisis might be in your workplace, um, it, does, it does provide an opportunity. A crisis is an opportunity because that's when the people around you are struggling and they're looking for hope or help. And if you can be that kind of solid rock, you know, in your workplace, the person of integrity, the person of compassion, uh, the person with perseverance and courage. Um, you can be a great encouragement to your coworkers. You can help lip, lift their spirits, right? And, uh, and help them through the crisis. And, and that's a wonderful thing to, uh, to be able to do. Rich, there are two other models that come to my mind that I think make this accessible to all of us, not just those who have a gift of evangelism. One is, I remember coaching a doctor who was a radiologist, and he told me he had to get in the into his office at 6.30 in the morning, start reading slides of people's scans in order to stay ahead of the operating rooms. And he is an extrovert, and he's reading slides in a dark room all day, and it was killing him. So he eventually became chief of staff, etc. But I asked him, how can you be salt and light in the setting that you're in right now? And... So he decided to do one thing. He decided that every slide he re read, he would say to the Lord, you are the great healer. I'm your hands. I'm the hands and feet of the great healer. Help me see what only you can see in this person's cancer scan. Mm. 
And what happened is before long, he'd come out of that dark room with this sense just buoyed by what he was able to see that he would, might not have others, otherwise seen. And it became a conversation point with his colleagues and, and, and with, his, with his patients. And it was just bubbling up from within. Mm-hmm. And, and all he did was a change of perspective. Another example is I remember meeting with a guy that runs an oil and gas business in Houston and it's uh, private equity backed and he's got maybe four or 500 employees and he wanted to turn it into a compassionate engine where they would not only produce cash, but compassion. And so we got his management team together for 90 minutes over lunchtime and we asked them, we gave them each three post-it notes and we said, what we'd like you to do is pretend you own this whole company. And you could use this company for any compassion, any human compassionate cause you thought of. Write on these three post-it notes the three things you do. Then we asked them to come up to the whiteboard and put the post-it where it belonged, on a grid. Now, across the bottom of the grid, it simply said physical, emotional, or spiritual needs. And on the vertical axis, it said our employees and their families, our clients and our suppliers, and the communities we work in. That's that's a nine box grid. And so the spiritual piece was right on there, but all of his management team came up with their post-it notes and they put the things they cared about, about using this company for compassion. And it begs the question, what are we doing for the spiritual needs of our employees or clients or supply? You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a pull, it's not a push. It's permission-based, it's coming out of their hearts and people like to support what they create themselves. So. Part of this just requires creativity. Yeah. Well, I think that's great and uh, maybe an encouragement for some of our listeners to uh, look into the training that Halftime offers and can offer you uh, in your career, either early in your career, mid-career, or even late career. Uh, there's some great tools that you guys have developed. Let, let me, uh, I want to talk about this idea of success and significance. And since you are the author of a book called From Success to Significance, you are maybe the authority I should talk to on this, but I make this assertion uh, in my book, which is a, a little, uh, you, you won't find it in any other leadership books. I say success is overrated. And then I go beyond that to say, not only is success overrated, success can actually become an idol in our lives that draws us away from God, not toward God. And I want to read a scripture verse from 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When you think about it, Lloyd, you know, we are living in a culture that is success obsessed. You know, the recent Super Bowl uh, where Tom Brady won uh, his seventh Super Bowl title, Um there was just incredible celebration of this most successful quarterback of all time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not just sports. I mean, we celebrate the 400 wealthiest people in the world. We celebrate the biggest churches, the fastest growing companies, the most famous celebrities. Um, Everything around us celebrates success and achievement, right? Um, Now, the worry here is that uh, if we're not careful, that success can become intoxicating, right? It can become that siren song that lures you away from, and maybe lures you into, as the Bible says, temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. So you've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of Christian leaders. Um, what can you tell us about the danger of success? And, and I want to be clear there's nothing wrong with being successful. The Lord doesn't want us all to be failures, right? You know, he, uh, success is fine, but success is not the main goal, at least worldly success. You know, faithfulness to the Lord is our primary goal. If we happen to be successful uh, as well, that's great. Uh, and we can celebrate that and we can use our success in ways that, that, that further the Lord's kingdom. But what would you say about the dangers of success? And have you seen leaders who have been led too far down that path and have to find a way to get back? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you define success as um, using what I have for my own benefit, and if you just define significance as using 
what I have to be a blessing to others, you know, starting obviously with myself and my family, but to, to others around me, um, then the pursuit of success alone will always fall short. You know, Jesus said, it's better to give than to get. Now that's an equation. It's never going to change. It's never going to go out of style. It's the truth. And so by definition, if all I do is acquire, it will fall short. It will ring shallow compared to using what I have to be a blessing to others. And not only that, value always has a time component to it. And if you just build stuff that has a value for now, then um, you will be disappointed because it, it's a short-lived thing. If I said to you, Rich, that you could have my classic uh, antique Mercedes sports car, what's the value of that? Well, it depends. If I say you can have it for the weekend or for the next five years or for the rest of your life. And so when you think about success, you have to think about how am I creating value that's going to last? Um, my father tells a story when he was young, went to the Jersey Shore, he was walking down the boardwalk and he was with his mom, he was a little boy, and he saw a little boy with a red bike, it was brand new, absolutely brand new, and my dad was th thinking, I would love to have a bike like that. They walked down the boardwalk, then they walked down onto the beach, and walking back the beach, there was a circle of people and all around, crowded around in a circle, and my dad made his way through their legs, he was just a little boy. There was the little guy lying on the ground. They were trying to resuscitate him. And mm. beside him was his red bike. And he died. He drowned. Wow. And my dad taught us at the dinner table, what would the value of a brand new, beautiful red bike be if you knew you could only use it for two hours? So when it comes to success, you, you really, it's hard to argue that you're being wise if you invest your whole life in stuff that's going to, it's going to disappear at the end of the day. Now, there are value, there's value in pursuing success, like I said before, and you and I talked about, you hone your leadership skills like Moses did. You, you learn how to balance things. You learn how to delineate between what's important and what's not, or what's priceless and what's just valuable. But to your question, I've seen so many people that find themselves in their mid-50s or 60s, and inadvertently they traded what's priceless for simple stuff that's simply valuable. Mm -hmm. And I remember at a YPO uh, conference, uh, there was a CEO that asked my wife, um, she, he said to her, you know, I've worked my, my butt off for the last 33 years. My wife has lived like a princess. And you spend a lot of time with spouses of wealthy, successful executives. Do you ever sense any kind of gratitude? Now, that, that's a deeply rooted pain-based question. Mm -hmm. But Linda smiled at him and said, yeah, sometimes I sense gratitude, but more often than not, I sense they traded the, the intimacy that they really wanted simply for lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So what you can do inadvertently on your quest is you can lose sight of the stuff that's really going to matter. Now, the second piece, though, is with a little careful thought, you can infuse significance and meaning into your life all the way along. I always say, Rich, that success, that halftime is a remedy, not a strategy, right? Mm -hmm. You and I would never say to our kids, hey, here's what you do. Get the best education. Put your head down. Focus on your career. Make as much money as you can. Then 45, look up, freak out, and see all the things you jeopardize along the way. Quit your job and join a nonprofit. <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah. You infuse life with significance. So it's a, it's a remedy, not a strategy. So the question is, what is my calling and purpose? How do I integrate it into my life all along the way? And there's no reason you and I can't pursue success with significance. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of wisdom there. You know, I, um, on occasion, you know, I took a lot of uh, trips with World Vision. In fact, I you have 20,000 hours of counseling. I have 3 million air miles that I flew uh, traveling with World Vision to 65 countries. But um, but occasionally I would go with a group of donors. And I, more than once, I would be in Africa or Asia, kind of like your experience with uh, Hong Kong and uh, all those years back. But but I'd be there with, a, you know, a kind of a grizzled old CEO um, in their 60s, you know, still still a CEO, not ready to retire. And I would literally see grown men and women burst into tears 
when they met the people that their donations had been helping uh, in Cambodia, in Zambia, and the realization that um, this was so much more significant to them than all of the awards, all of the investment accounts they have, the vintage Mercedes in their garage, you know, all the things that they had worked so hard for. And when it was tragic is when they realized that too late, they, they realized it in their 60s instead of in their 20s. <laughs> and uh, and some of them tried to make up for lost time, right? You know, uh, I remember one gentleman from the Dakotas, he and his wife um, started traveling in their 70s and started taking all of these World Vision trips, one or two a year in their 70s, all around the world in some pretty hard locations for senior citizens to go. Uh, but it was almost like he was making up for lost time. Like, I, this is so important. This is so exciting. This is so life-giving. I want to do more of this. I want to help more of these children and these communities. And uh, again, I think the, the opportunity is don't let your whole life go by before you realize the things that are most important uh, to you and to the Lord and, and eternally. Well, Lloyd, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, and uh, I, I could do another whole podcast with you, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I want to throw maybe one last question to you, and you, you can also comment about anything else uh, before we close. But um, I'm thinking about a person right now that doesn't like their job. They maybe don't like where they work or what they're doing, and it seems like a dead end to them. And uh, let's say they're in their 30s and uh, they're having a kind of a crisis of purpose and calling right now in their lives. Uh, what advice would you give somebody like that? Well, um, you know, when I do these groups, I call them the Emerging Leader Roundtable. And we'll get six or eight um, young leaders that are between 28 and 38. And um, we start by debunking the American dream. And that's a good thing. That's a get, get your mind, you know, get disillusioned. You know, the word disillusion means to remove the illusion. And the illusion is that the American dream will deliver on its promise. And, you know, you, you soon learn that I, I need to go from making a, a living to making a life. The second thing is to get clear on who you are. Start with your strengths and your passions. What, what do I really care about? And, uh, and then from that, build a personal mission statement. With the mission statement in hand, you can go look for, create scenarios on paper for how you could live that out and still make a living. And uh, very often you need some friends around you. You know, one of the things that I've done uh, in my 30s was to build a personal board of directors, Rich. If you read the Wall Street Journal, every weekend there's an article on personal board of directors. Hmm, wow. Some executive has a personal board of directors. Just go look at it. William Wilberforce had one when he was fighting um, slavery. And C.S. Lewis had a personal board of directors. So I would build a group of peers around me, um, or you could go through an emerging leader roundtable with one of our groups at the Halftime Institute and try to get clear on your calling and then the platform that fits you best. And make a transition early. As, you know, this is where the leadership principle that you have in your book around surrender and courage and perseverance plays out because it takes courage mm -hmm. to follow your calling. And it always costs you something to follow your calling. But here's the thing I love about what Jesus said, is he said to, he said, he told us to lay up treasure. Now, so it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to be successful and lay up treasure. He just then tells us how to do it. He says, lay up treasure in heaven where neither rust, rust nor moth will or thieves won't break in and steal, right? Um, so if you're not living your life in alignment with your calling, if you don't know what your calling is, I would say, first of all, get clear on your purpose and then be creative in exploring um, ways that you could live it out and still make a living to provide for your family. There's one verse that I love that's in Matthews eleven twenty eight, And I'm learning this this year, Rich. When you're in a spot where you're not equipped and you're feeling and you don't like your work, you generally burn out because it doesn't fulfill you. And so Jesus said in a message 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight, are you tired and worn out, burned out in religion? Come to me, 
Get away with me. You'll discover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and get this. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's great. The message translation often brings those passages to life you know, for us. Well, Lloyd, I uh, I just want to thank you Um I hope our listeners uh, really got a lot out of your wisdom and your uh, your experience with so many leaders uh, through the Halftime Institute. And I wanted to just close by saying, if somebody wants to connect with you or the Halftime Ministry, what's the best way for them to do that? Is there a website or a place they should go? Yeah, just simply go to halftime.org, H-A-L-F-T-I-M-E dot O-R-G. Or Lloyd.reeb at halftime.org, and I'd be glad to help them. And Rich, thanks for including me. I love you. I love what you're doing. I'm always going to be, um, anytime you call, the answer is yes, okay? So you, you just call anytime. <laughs> well, I pre- I want to thank you. And uh, also, you know, not just for today, but for being a friend and a mentor to me for the past 15 years or so. I think we've known each other about that long. And uh, I know just before I uh, retired from World Vision, you gave me a a free counseling call that went out on for about an hour on the phone with some advice for retirement. And so I guess part of taking that advice is I, I wrote a leadership book so I could continue to be, I think you said you go from warrior to king to sage and, uh, and uh, which is maybe a military example, but uh, you, you, you encourage me to lean into this sage uh, period of my life where I can maybe share some of the wisdom I gained along the way with with other leaders. So thank you for being with us, and thanks for being a, a friend and a yeah, mentor. Thank you, Rich. You're so welcome. My privilege. All right. God bless you, Lloyd. Thank you. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast, and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God values-driven leadership in a success-driven world. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.